The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, several weeks ago, I preached the very, I re-preached the very first message I ever did on preterism, which was 21 years ago this weekend. All right, 21 years. Hard to believe that this church has been around that long. So what I want to do this morning is preach the second message that I did on preterism 21 years ago. <clears throat> that first message, if you're interested, was called Inspiration in the Second Coming. We did that uh, not long ago. And what we did in that message, we looked at the time statements in the Bible as to the coming of the Lord. Because to me, that, that's the significance. You gotta, if you get the time statements, you get preterism. Because it's all about time. And if you don't get it, then you don't know what time it is. And if you don't know what time it is, you're going to have a hard time understanding the Bible. Now we saw that the Lord said He would come while some of them that were standing there were still alive. We saw that He said He would come in that generation. He said He would come soon, quickly, at hand, shortly. He said His coming was near. Everywhere that the Bible talks about the Lord's coming, it gives us a time statement. The New Testament saints fully expected the Lord to return in their lifetime. How do we miss this today? How do we read our Bibles and miss this? The majority of believers today, some 2,000 years later, are still saying, He's coming back soon. I mean, you ask any believer that just about, they'll tell you that. And so I, this is my question. Can the same event be eminent at two different time periods separated by 2,000 years? See, that's where we miss it. We think it's soon, but it was written to them, and it was soon 2,000 years ago. So if it's still soon, then soon has no meaning. Has no meaning at all. Now, when I first became a preterist and I was delivering these messages in the very beginning, someone said to me that they felt the Lord was saying He was coming soon because He wanted every generation to be watching for Him. Now think about that. What that means is that when He told the first century believers that He was coming back soon, He really didn't mean it. He was just tricking them, right? He was giving them false information. That's what they're saying. The Lord was giving them false information to keep them looking for Him. And I said to them, can you live with that? The Lord deceiving people, tricking them, telling them things that weren't true? If that was the case, then I'd say, what else did He tell us that really wasn't true? Do we have a God who intentionally deceives man? No, that's ridiculous. It's much easier simply to believe that Yeshua meant what He said and He returned in the first century. What's at stake here, people, is the inspiration of Scripture. See, if Yeshua was mistaken, or if He lied to us, then what good is the rest of the Bible? Now, those who are opponents of this view, (coughs) they say that if you believe that Yeshua came back in the first century, then you don't need to read your Bible anymore. And when I first became a preterist and we separated from the church, the other church was telling people, they had little meetings, and they, were, they took a Bible and threw it across the room. If you believe what Dave Curtis believes, you don't even need this Bible anymore. I'm like, I'm not really sure where they got that from. I don't understand that argument at all. But here's my take on that argument. If Yeshua didn't come back in the first century, then you can throw your Bible away. Because it's full of lies. Because He promised it over and over and over. Our Bible is inspired, but if it isn't inspired, then it's really no good to us. But I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and therefore it's without errors, and therefore we have to adjust our thinking to align with the book, not with society. People, Christianity is intellectual. That might be hard to believe in our society, you know, because it's so emotional. But faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. God said in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together. 
This is important because you're a product of your thinking. And what's really frightening about this is that in our culture, thinking is not really important. Matter of fact, it's almost getting like it's not important at all anymore, you know? We are so concerned, we're not so concerned about thinking, we're more concerned about two other things. Emotion and pragmatism. We're concerned about feelings, we're concerned about success, we're not so concerned about truth and thinking. People don't ask the question anymore, is this true, is this right? They ask the question, does it work, and how will it make me feel? Those are the questions asked today. It's emotion and pragmatism. And this is tragic, especially because it has taken over the Christian church. And you just don't expect people to think anymore, because they can't. They don't, you know, and that's why you go to most churches, you're going to hear three points in a poem, you're going to see a little show, explosions, light shows, everything's going off. They're entertaining the masses, and I don't find anywhere in the Word of God we're called to entertain people. Even in theology, it's sad to say that the issue is not always is it true or is it right, but will it offend or upset somebody? Now, you know I never worry about that, okay? <laughs> Sometimes my wife worries that I don't worry about that. But it's just the truth, you know, and the truth that does, it's going to offend people. We, today, we're worried about how will the truth make someone feel? You know, Acts 17.11 says the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scripture, not to see if these things make you feel good, not to see if these things worked, or even to see these things will offend somebody. They did it to see if these things were so. Is it true? Is it right? Now, some folks have said to me, if you believe that Yeshua came back in AD 70, it might affect some areas of my life. You know, if I believe that doctrine, it, it can affect me in negative ways, such as, will a mission board consider me? <clears throat> Probably not. Will I be accepted in certain colleges? Probably not. Can I work in an Awana program? Maybe not. I mean, they didn't want our kids playing t-ball with their kids. You know, when this church started, Garrett, Garrett was 11 years old. And he was on a t-ball league, and that church said, we don't want you. And I'm like, they're not trying to evangelize your kids, okay? They just want to play t-ball. Listen, please listen carefully. <clears throat> Those are the wrong questions. You know, R.C. Sproul even said to me, so R.C. Sproul Sr., when talking to him, you know, kind of twisting his arm, pushing him on this thing, you know. I'm like, what holds you back from full predators? Because he was so close. And he said, oh, it's the resurrection. I said, Daniel 12 says the resurrection happened at the time when the holy pe- power of the holy people was shattered. I said, this is all about, you know, first century. And he looked at me and he says, I have 100 people in this ministry that I'm responsible for. 100 families. And I'm like, so? And again, my response is, is it true? Is it right? It's not how will it affect you in the future? How will it affect these families? Because if you're going to stand on pragmatism, we're all in trouble, you know? And that's how most churches are. Most churches are all about pragmatism, so you be careful. If you want a big church, here's what you got to be careful to do. Don't offend anybody. Okay? Make sure... And, and then, how do you get into any doctrine? If you preach Calvinism, the Arminians are upset. You preach Preters and the Futurists are upset. You preach free grace, the Lordship people. Someone's always upset if you're laying out truth. And so if your goal is to be big... You just got to do three points in a poem and make sure no one gets offended. Joel does a great job of that, by the way. You know, he just says nothing eloquently, but he makes you feel good saying it, you know? So that's what the church has become. But the only important question we need to really ask is is it true? And people will say to me, well, why does this really matter? Why does it matter if the Lord came back in the first century? How does it affect? And I always say the same thing. Does truth matter? Because if it's true, you know, and at the conference this weekend, Heiser said, I don't care about eschatology. Well, that's crazy because it's in the Bible. So you can't say there's parts of the Bible I just don't care about. I care about all of it. Do I understand it? Oh, no, probably not. But you can't just say I don't care about that. I'm focusing on this. It's truth. And truth matters. Is it true? Is it right? Now, 
when I first came to see the truth that the Lord had returned in AD 70, it was quite a shock for me, understanding that all prophecy had been fulfilled. And my first objection, as I started thinking and pondering through all this, was this. This means that we are in the new heaven and the new earth right now. And I'm arguing with myself and I'm saying, yeah, right. If this is the new heaven and new earth, we got ripped off. That was my first you know, thought, because why? I'm talking about a physical thing. You know, but the Bible says, well, this should have come up earlier, buy the truth and sell it not. It's about truth, all right? You know, but I'm just, you know, I'm looking for a physical solution. I read the Bible and I'm looking for physical things. I'm not seeing it in the spiritual. I don't connect the dots. And so that was my first, you know, this is a new heaven and earth. <clears throat> I looked for a physical fulfillment of 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21, 22. I thought that those passages were speaking physical things. Now, I know differently now. I didn't understand apocalyptic language, one of the problems. And the thing that changed my mind was seeing how the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, used the concept of heaven and earth. Let's look at how the Bible uses this concept of heaven and earth. And I think you'll see that it's not always used in a physical sense. It is sometimes. And again, that's context. We have to understand context. Look at, look at a passage in 2 Peter 3 here. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, people, if you just pick up a Bible and you read that, you're thinking, oh my word, this is physical. Everything's going to burn up. The heavens are going to pass away. We know what heavens are, right? Something up there somewhere. Heavenly bodies are going to be burned up. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That doesn't sound good. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now most Christians would read that and they would say, this is the end of the world as we know it. It's the destruction of the physical heavens and the physical earth. It's going to happen in our future. Now, they know it's future. Why? Because they're still living on the earth. So it has to be future, right? But, have you ever thought of this? If heaven and earth have not passed away, <clears throat> all of us are under the Mosaic Law. Every bit of it, Okay? Look what Yeshua said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, if heaven and earth have not passed away, the Mosaic Law is intact. Every bit of it. All of it. This would mean that the 613 commandments in the Torah have to be followed until these cataclysmic events take place. It means that we should, people, be sacrificing animals in Jerusalem. Anybody done that lately? It means that the men, women can, but men have to, Go to Jerusalem three times a year for the pilgrim feast. We're required to go to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast. This one grieves me. We are not allowed to eat shellfish. <laughs> it means we have to worship on Saturday. And there's where probably every one of us in this room are in trouble. We're not allowed to wear clothes that are a mixture of linen and cotton. Okay? I think you get the point, right? If the law is intact, all this stuff, we're under this. All right? If heaven and earth have not passed away, then we are under the Mosaic law. But most believers today would say it obviously has not passed away because the earth hasn't been burned up and the elements haven't been melted and we haven't seen all this stuff. Modern Christians come up with an end of the solar system scenario 
Because we're so unfamiliar with the first three quarters of the Bible. We take this language literally. All the language that Yeshua and the writers of the New Testament use comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. Unfortunately, it's known today as the Old Testament. Listen, the Mosaic Covenant is old, meaning it's been replaced by the New. But the first three quarters of our Bible are not old, meaning they've been replaced and they're irrelevant. And therefore, they should not be called old. It's not the Old Testament. That's why I call it the Tanakh. I think if you call it the Old Testament, we don't need it, it's old. This week at the gym, I was talking to a guy, and I don't know how we got on the subject, but we're talking about Bible reading. He goes, I just read the New Testament. And I told him, I said, you're starting at the last quarter of the Bible. And he kind of looked at me puzzled. I said, you know, all the guys who wrote that were Hebrews, and everything they wrote about was developed from the first three quarters of the Bible. So you started three quarters through, and you think you're going to understand the language? And you could see that you know, the question marks were swollen in his head. I said, those writers use language from the beginning, those first three quarters of the book. So if you don't understand their language, you're lost. You just start here and you're making up interpretations for these words that are not biblical. And see, that's our problem. You know, we've separated that. We have New Testaments now. Well, you pick it up and you're lost because it's all developed from the first three quarters. Everything taught in the New Testament comes from the Tanakh. Paul said this, This day I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So Paul's saying, I'm just saying what's in the Old Testament, what, what the Tanakh speaks of. I'm, I'm communicating that. He said that he's saying nothing but that. Everything I preach comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you want to understand, Paul, if you want to understand any of the New Testament writers, you must understand the Hebrew Scriptures first. All their language is developed from there. And if you're not familiar with apocalyptic language of the Scriptures, you're not going to understand what Peter's saying. If you approach the New Testament's apocalyptic language without recognizing it for what it is, and do not understand how to deal with its tone, its images, and its symbols, you're going to go astray. You just, you know, you're going to mess up. <clears throat> uh, notice its use in uh, Psalm 114, 1-4 here. It says, When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, a people of strange language, Judah became its sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountain skipped. Have you ever, ever, you ever, see, ever seen mountains skip? It's really cool. Like rams, the hills like lambs. Then he dreamed... Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <clears throat> now, did the mountains literally skip? No, they did not. This is what's called apocalyptic language. I think the best way to describe ap apocalyptic language is like an editorial cartoon. Exaggerated greatly, but you get the point, right? And that's the point. It's, it's exaggerated. That's the thing about apocalyptic language. Great commotions and judgments upon earth are represented by commotions and changes in the heavens. This language is not to be taken literally. So let's go to the Hebrew Scriptures and see how heaven and earth, sun and moon, stars are used and see if we can develop how they're used in the new. Now, where do we start? If we want to understand this language, where do we begin? Well, let's start at the beginning. Genesis, okay? And uh, let's start with a dream. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told his brothers and he said, see, if I had this dream, I wouldn't tell anybody, okay? But he told them, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Okay, so what do you think is going on there? Is Joseph's dream about the literal sun, moon, and stars bowing to him? How would the sun bow? This may confuse us, but Joseph's father knew exactly what he was saying. Look at what his dad said. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? 
Where did he get that from? Joseph didn't say anything about them bowing down. He said the sun, moon, and stars. So how'd they do this? They interpret the dream as referring to himself, his wife, and their sons. Because they were the heads of the 12 tribes, identified as the sun, moon, and stars, respectively. See, they represented the foundation of the whole Jewish nation. And when the biblical writers spoke of the sun being darkened, and the moon not giving its light, and the stars falling from heaven, they weren't referring to the end of the solar system, but to the complete dissolution of the Jewish state. See, they, this is the foundation here. They were the sun, moon, and stars of the Jewish state. Now, we see this in Leviticus 26. Yahweh's talking to Israel, and He says this, I will set My face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. You shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Now notice here how the character of Israel's disposition and God's view is personalized. He said, your heaven, your earth. So the terms heaven and earth belong or are related to Israel. They're belonging to a nation usually and evidently constitute, Israel constitutes a heaven and earth. Now one of the major areas of difficulty in understanding correctly heaven and earth is the New Testament, the misunderstanding of how God referred to nations by, this, by these phrases in the Tanakh. Often when he talks about this, he's talking about nations. Seeing the biblical concept of heaven and earth in the Tanakh, I think, will help us understand its use in the New Testament passages. Now, rather than assume every time we encounter the phrase, uh, we're to immediately think of the physical elements, physical heaven, physical earth. Apocalyptic language is common among the Hebrew prophets. This idea is seen clearly as we look at passages where mention is made of the destruction of a state or government using language which seems to set forth the end of the whole world. For example, uh, Isaiah 1, 1 and 2. (coughs) He says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For Yahweh has spoken. Children have I raised and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Who's God talking to here? Is he talking to the physical heavens and the physical earth? Listen to me, dirt. Listen to me, stars or whatever. Who's he talking to? Well, Isaiah said this is a vision which saw concerning Judah. So he's talking about Judah. It's not physical creation. I think we can see that if we look at, for example, Isaiah 51, 15 and 16. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is His name. I have put My words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of My hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, You are My people. This, what he's saying here is the time of planting the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth is referred to here as creating the nation Israel. It says He stirred the sea in verse 15. He gave the law, verse 16. He said to Zion, you're my people. (coughs) Excuse me. This is referring to when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt. He formed them in the wilderness into a covenant nation. He says, that is when I planted the heavens and I laid the foundation of the earth. That is, he brought forth order. He brought forth government. This idea is seen more clearly when we look at other passages where mention is made of the dissolution of a state and government using language that sets forth, or seems to set forth, the end of the world as the collapse of heaven and earth. In Isaiah 13, 1 and 2, he says, The oracle concerning Babylon. Alright, now that's telling us this is what this chapter is about. Okay, In this chapter, Yahweh is talking about the judgment that is to fall on Babylon. The word oracle here is the Hebrew word Massah, and it means an utterance of doom. God is pronouncing doom on Babylon. You've you got to start with that verse and then read the rest of the chapter because that's what this chapter is about. See, the introduction sets the stage 
for the subject matter in the chat in this chapter. And if you forget that, then your interpretation of Isaiah 13 will go just about anywhere your imagination wants it to go. This is not an oracle against the universe. It's not an oracle against the world. It's an oracle against Babylon. 13.6 says, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. Destruction from the Almighty will come. God's going to come and He's going to judge Babylon. Verses 9-13 through says, Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising. That sounds like you know pretty serious destruction. There we got stars, we got heaven. You know, he goes on to say, and the moon will not shed its light. So, in Isaiah 13, is the moon going out and all the heavens just collapsing? He says, I will punish the world for its evil. Remember, world is who. Is Babylon, the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of their arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place. The wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. Now remember... He's speaking about Babylon, but it sounds like worldwide destruction when you read this. And again, the terminology of a context can't be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. It's a judgment of Babylon. The spectrum of language here can't go outside the land of Babylon. Because here's how i got to understand it, people. He's writing, this is directed, this is what I'm going to do to Babylon. If you are a Babylonian and your nation is destroyed, you get the impression the whole world's gone, right? Because that's, all, that's your world. Like if America was destroyed, our light's gone out, we're done. America, the, you know, it's worldwide destruction because it's our world. Your world would be destroyed. Isaiah 13, 17, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver, do not delight in gold. This is describing a historical event that took place in 539 B.C., <coughs> Excuse me. When the Medes destroyed Babylon, the Babylonian world came to an end. The destruction is said in verse 6 to be from the Almighty, and the Medes constitute the means that God used to accomplish his task. I'm going to do it, God said. I'm sending the Medes in there to do it for me. The physical heaven and earth is still intact after this. You've got to understand that. You've got to see that. That's not complicated, all right? But for Babylon, everything collapsed. This is apocalyptic language. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation. And see, when we develop this through the Bible, then when we get to Matthew 24, talking about all these stars falling from heaven, you're like, oh, it's talking about Jerusalem, not the world. Now I get it. In Isaiah 24-27, through we see the invasion of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. Captures, destroys, carries away. 24, 3 through 6. The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered. Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. So it's the earth here. The earth is mourning. He says, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth, and the inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So we get the earth here being burned up, it's scorched. 24.19 says, the earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, the transgression lies heavy upon it. And it falls, it will not rise again. What I want you to see in these verses is how Yahweh refers to Israel as the earth. Now we read that, the earth, earth, that sounds like total destruction. But again, the context, he's talking about Israel. Because to them, the earth is being destroyed because they're being destroyed. And that's how we see things. 
Notice how many times in this text God refers to Israel as the earth. Again, this is apocalyptic language, speaking of destruction of people of Israel. In Isaiah 34, we have a description of the fall of Edom. uses the same exact language. I mean, how many times can the whole world be destroyed and yet still be here? This is the way God describes the fall of a nation. If this language describes the judgment of God on nations, why, when we come to the New Testament, do we make it be nationwide? Do we make it be global? It is only because we don't understand how the Bible uses apocalyptic language. So I hope you can see that the Bible does not always mean the physical universe when it speaks of heaven and earth together. Now, We see that, I think that's clear in the Scriptures. If you're familiar with the Scriptures, you see that. Well, let's look at Jewish literature for a minute also. The Jewish, in Jewish literature, they saw the temple as a portal connecting heaven and earth. I think you can understand that, okay, because this is where God was, so this, this temple connects heaven and earth. They called the temple the navel of the earth in their literature. They called it the gateway to heaven. Enoch 26.1 talks about that. Just like the Mesopotamian Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the temple connected God's realm to where humans live. Now what's going on in the Tower of Babel? They're trying to get God under their terms. We're going to get God down here so we can control Him. To reflect this belief, the Jerusalem temple was built to look like a microcosm of the universe. We see this in the temple hymn, in Psalm 78, 69. Now watch, you might miss this reading through this, but he says, he built his sanctuary, talking about Yahweh building his sanctuary, watch, like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded. So he built the temple to reflect the heavens and earth. Now according to Josephus, two parts of the tabernacle were approachable and open to all, but one was not. He explains that in so doing, Moses signifies the earth and the sea, since those two are accessible to all, but the third portion is reserved for God alone, because heaven is inaccessible to man. So the Holy of Holies, that's God. That's the heavens. Outside that, the sea, the land, that's where men can go. Now, the veil between the accessible and inaccessible parts of the temple was designed to represent the entire material world during Yeshua's day. Josephus and Philo agree that the veil was composed of four materials representing the four elements, earth, water, air, fire. Heaven was beyond this material world. It's behind the curtain. See, outside the temple's microcosm of heaven and earth, the courts look like the sea. Numbers Rabbah 13.9, which is a, a Jewish writing, says the court surrounds the temple just as the sea surrounds the world. Now, in Talmudic tradition, rabbis describe how the inner walls of the temple look like waves of the sea. From heaven and earth inside the temple, you looked out at the sea surrounding the world. Why? Because the ancients believed the earth was one giant landmass surrounded by sea. So the temple reflected that cosmology. Now, the accessible accessible section of the temple and the surrounding courts embodied both the landmass and the sea, believed to comprise the earth, but the most holy place was heaven. That's where God's presence resided. So the temple complex to the Jews, we see this often in Josephus and Philo's writing, that temple complex, all right, their temple and the surrounding was considered heaven and earth. All right, the earth was the parts they went in, the heaven was the part they were not allowed in, the holy of holies. Now with this understanding, of how heaven and earth is used in the Tanakh and used in Jewish literature. With that in mind, let's look at 2 Peter 3. This was by far the text that I struggled with the most because this text just seems, sounds so physical. All right? I couldn't understand how we were in the new heavens and new earth. And as you read different commentaries, you will read things like this, you know, commenting on 2 Peter. They'll say, this is by far the strongest passage to prove the consummation of time the termination of the earth as we know it. So obviously everybody's looking. This Peter here is talking about everything being destroyed. Is he really? Let's look at this text. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I'm stirring you up, up, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter is reminding his readers of what's already been said. See, the New Testament doesn't contain brand new prophecy that just drop out of the sky, new information. Second Peter is just a reiteration of what's already been written by the prophets before. Peter gives us a key to interpretation. The key is that what he is saying has been spoken of by the Old Covenant prophets. So you want to understand, Peter? Go back and look at the prophets. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, he says that scoffers are going to come in the last days. Now, if you talk to your average Christian today, when did the last days begin? I think most of them will get the thing that they began with Yeshua's timetable. Most people understand that, okay? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, okay? And a long time ago, He did that. But in these last days, so whatever they are, the writer of Hebrews is in them. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed an heir of the all things through whom He created the world. So, <clears throat> in the days of Yeshua, the last days have begun. And here's what we have to understand. Here's what most people get. You read last days and you're like, the last days of earth, right? Well, that's not the subject matter. It's the last days of Israel, the last days of the Old Covenant. And the last days ran from 30 to 70 A.D. They're not, we're not still in the last days. Now, most believers will believe we're still in the last days. So the last days started around A.D. 30. These are the last days, and most people understand it's the last days of Israel. So they started in A.D. 30. 2,000 years later, we're still in the last days. So the last days of Israel are longer than their whole existence, which is, it just doesn't make any sense at all, all right? Isn't it interesting that during the time the last days, before A.D. 70, the scoffers are already mocking and saying, where's the promise of His coming? Where is it? This was about 35 years after the Lord's death. So there, 35 years of, where's the promise of His coming? He hasn't even shown up. What would they be saying today, 2,000 years later? Wow, you guys. I think he deceived you. I think he lied. He, you know, it's 2,000 years. He's not coming. Listen, they knew the coming was to be soon. And so that's why here they're mocking. Where's this promise? How come we don't see it? Now, some use the argument for, from verses 5 through 7 that the world was destroyed in Noah's day and the world will be destroyed again. Okay, so he's comparing here Noah. So the world was destroyed then, so it's going to be destroyed again. So if the world hadn't been destroyed, then this prophecy is not fulfilled. Well, let's consider that argument. He says, For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. All right, Peter says that the world consisted of heaven and earth and that they were destroyed by water and that they perished, all right? The heaven and earth perished. Now, we know that the substance of neither heaven and earth was destroyed, but evil men were destroyed. And Peter makes a distinction between heaven and earth of Noah's day, which were destroyed, and the heavens and the earth that existed to which were to be destroyed by fire. So the literal, visible fabric of heaven and earth were the same after the flood as they were before the flood. Let's remember what we saw in the Tanakh as to the apocalyptic use of heaven and earth. The destruction of heaven and earth refers to the civil and religious state and the men in them, not to the destruction of everything around it. Okay, After the flood, the earth was still there. The dirt was still there. The dirt was still there. The sky was still there. The sun was still there. 
He says, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The world. How did the world perish? What did the world mean? It's the orderly arrangement of society. The dirt was still there. Now, how do you go from an ungodly society that was destroyed in Noah's day? That's what was destroyed, nothing else. The heavens were still there. Sky was still there. Dirt was still there. Just people were destroyed. How do you go from that to the destruction of the entire universe in Peter? The litter earth wasn't destroyed. What is to be destroyed was the ungodly nation of Israel. That's what it's talking about. Nowhere do the Scriptures teach that the physical creation will be destroyed. You can't find any verses that teach that. Notice what God said after Noah's flood. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Do you believe God? Except, he says, oh, oh, there's an exception clause in there? Well, I don't see it. He says, because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. I'm not going to do that again, he said. I mean, that's, that's what it says there, right? Now, folks will say, well, the Lord destroyed the earth by water, but He's going to destroy it again by fire next time. Oh, that's comforting. I know, I'm not going to be drowned. I'm going to be burnt. Somehow that brings comfort to people. You know, well, that's a great promise, God. Thank you for frying us next time instead of drowning us. I think I'd rather drown, tell you the truth. All right? Is God promising here to change His method of destroying everything? There's no comfort in that. Or is He promising not to destroy the earth again? He says, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done. Look at Psalm 148, 4-6. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. For He commanded, and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, it shall not pass away. So here it's saying, He established the heavens and the earth, and He established them forever, and He gave a decree that these establishments won't pass away. Now, what decree did God make concerning the establishment of the heaven and earth that will not pass away? I'll give you a hint, we just read it. Genesis 8.21, He'll never again destroy the earth. He was not going to do it. And I think he can be trusted. I think he keeps his word. So the Bible doesn't talk about an end to what we have here. 2 Peter 3, 8, 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. Oh my word, I get so sick of hearing that verse by people. You know, you know here's what this verse does for most people. This verse wipes out any time statement in the Bible. Nothing means that soon doesn't mean soon. Today doesn't mean today. Near doesn't mean near. Because the day of the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years. So that just wipes out any kind of time statements. Okay, that's their catch-all verse that wipes everything out. Here's what you've got to understand, people. Time, God is beyond time. No doubt about that. But who's he writing to? People. And do we reckon time? Absolutely. So God's writing to us. So when he uses time statements, he's not referring to himself, this is how I value it. No, he's saying, I know how you deal with time, and it's soon. It's quick. It's shortly. Okay? So don't be, you know, people throwing this verse all the time. You know, a day is a thousand years. Yes, it is, but to us it's not. And God's talking to us, people. These verses are simply saying, God keeps his promises. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slow. They're saying, where's the promise? They say, oh, don't worry, God's not slack to concern the promise. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's on a time schedule. Don't worry about it. He's going to come. He's going to keep His word. He's going to do just what He said He's going to do. He said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? It's the time of the judgment here on Israel. The day of the Lord is the time of judgment. It's when the Lord comes in judgment. It's the end. Peter's talking about the end of the old covenant age. 
We have a parallel passage in Matthew 24:42. Therefore, stay awake, because you don't know what day the Lord's coming. Now, people, this was written 2,000 years ago. The Lord's talking to people that are right there. He's not sitting here in front of you talking to you. Okay, we're reading somebody else's mail right now. He's talking to them. You gotta, that's a simple thing, but you've got to keep that in mind or you're going to get so lost. But know this. If the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. You understand that, right? If you know the thief's coming, you're, not, you're going to be ready. All right, You're going to be uh, locked and loaded and ready for the thief to show up Okay, because you got word he's coming. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not know. So be ready, because He's coming. He is talking to people in that first century that the Lord was coming soon. And Peter is talking about Yeshua's second coming at the end of the Jewish age. When the Lord comes, the heaven and earth of the old covenant age, that temple system and everything with it is done. And isn't it interesting that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed by Titus, the Roman, They've never sacrificed a sacrifice since. Judaism goes on, but it's not the Judaism of the Old Covenant. doesn't even resemble it in any way. They don't kill anything today. How do you have a Jewish system without sacrifices? You have no priests because you have no lineage. You know, you could go on and on and on. There's nothing. It's done. Because the Lord was saying, I'm done with this. We're moving on. Now, the words heavenly bodies here, it's interesting because the ESV is probably the only translation that uses this heavenly bodies. This is the Greek word stoicheion. Alright? And in most translations it's translated elements. Okay? And so we here we have the elements being burned up. And the elements will burn up and be dissolved. So if you read John MacArthur, he says the elements here are the elements of matter. Okay? Well, John, get out your Greek and look up stoicheion, and that's not what that's talking about. Okay? The Greek word stoicheion is only used seven times in the New Testament, and if you look at its uses, you see it has two main meanings. Stoicheion is used of elements of religious training or the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews. In Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, the literal meaning of the word is element, rudiment, or principle. The principles of Judaism it's often used for. In other words, this is the Elements of religious training, the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews and Gentiles, these things are going to be dissolved. But stoicheion is also understood by scholars to refer to heavenly spirits. And see, ESV reflects that here. Heavenly bodies. Because in AD 70, it wasn't just Jerusalem that was destroyed and judged. All the false gods that God had given control of the nations were also judged. So these heavenly bodies were also judged at that time, which is why they translated heavenly bodies in the ES. Now obviously this stoicheion is not about atoms, it's not about the destruction of the universe. I mean, when you read elements in your Bible, you think, I know the periodic table, I know what elements are. No, 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 that's not what they're talking about. That's why we got to do a little further investigation, just, you know, buying into things. He says these things are going to be dissolved, okay? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, the heavens are going to be set on fire and dissolve. Not the literal heavens. This is the Jewish nation. This is the Jewish city, the temple being destroyed. The old covenant system is dissolved, not the universe. Now, let me ask you this. Where do you have a promise? He says, he says, but according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where do we have that promise? What? Okay, yeah. How about Isaiah 65 and 66? Let's go back to Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Cool. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now people, this verse is written 
by Isaiah to the people of that day. But think about what this means to us. I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We're living in that new heaven and new earth. And he says, the former things will not be remembered to come to mind. How many of you remember the former things of old covenant sacrifices? We don't live in that world. We haven't lived in that world. That doesn't even come to our mind. Now, if you read Isaiah 65 and 66, you'll notice that before God creates the new heavens and a new earth, he pours out his wrath against Jerusalem. Okay? So first, Jerusalem is destroyed. His rebellious people. And then when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, if you read in this text, you notice that the physical death still remains. Now, people have a problem with this because they say, well, this is the eternal state. This is, you know, after God destroys the earth, when we're going to heaven, you know, some people think heaven comes back to earth or you're in heaven, whatever. But this is the eternal state. Well, it's kind of interesting that physical death still there. Isaiah 65.20 and 66.24. Here's an interesting thing. Home construction and agriculture will continue. Isaiah 65, 21, 22. So we're still building houses. We'll have descendants. Isaiah 65, 23, 66, 22. The Lord will hear their prayers. 65, 24. There will be evangelism. 66, 19. What are we evangelizing? The new heavens and the new earth, therefore, must be referring to a period in human history. Because all things are going on. And this is the period of the kingdom of God which Christ rules in the hearts of believers. This is the new heavens because the old heavens of Judaism were destroyed. And we live in the new heavens and earth of the new covenant. New heavens, new earth, new covenant, they're synonymous, okay? The kingdom of God is made without hands. Now, if we take the statements from the Scriptures at face value, then we should conclude that the first heavens and the first earth passed away, and they're replaced by the glorious reign of the Lord, Yeshua, and the kingdom that has no end. If Second Peter is based on the Old Covenant prophets, and it is, we clearly see that, and if Second Peter 3 has not been fulfilled, as I said earlier, we're still under the Old Covenant, which means we're in serious trouble, because none of us are doing too many things right. Wearing the wrong clothes, we're eating the wrong food, we're worshiping wrong, we're doing everything wrong. It's really simple. That's what the Lord said. Until heaven and earth pass away, until it does, the law remains intact. Every bit of it. 613, so you better start learning some of those things, okay? So you know what you're supposed to do. And it's amazing to me that, you know, like I said, a lot of people just don't think about this because they know, I don't know you can find too many Christians say we're under Old Covenant law. But why? Have the heaven and earth passed away? No, they haven't, so we must still be under it. If we're in the new covenant, the old covenant must have passed away. And if the old covenant has passed away, then 2 Peter 3 has been fulfilled. Now, this language sounds really physical until you're familiar with it from the prophets where Peter is quoting from, and it's not physical. Now, futurists teach that the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21 And the new Jerusalem of Revelation 22 is the saved of all ages. This is the eternal state. We're all in heaven. Everything's wonderful. You know, this is the bride of Christ at the end of the millennium when all things have ended and we've embarked on eternity. They've entered eternity, sin and death, Hades, Satan. It's all been cast into the lake of fire. All the evil has been disposed of. God has healed the church of all her ills. Sin is finally purged. And it's just everything's wonderful and all tears are wiped away and everything's just lovely, right? The futurists teach that the earth will be a physical paradise at this time. But, is that what the Scriptures say? Here's some problems they have. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. This is the new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem. From the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Here's this river flowing. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now when we look at this verse, a question immediately should come to your mind, why do the nations need healing? This is supposed to be the new heavens and new earth. This is the new Jerusalem where everything's all over. Who needs healed here? See, if you adopt the futurist view, then one is at pains to explain this tree. 
And it's also, you know, in these in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, it talks about that inside the city, this is the city of God, it's beautiful, but outside are dogs and whoremongers and sorcerers and whoever works a lie. Who are those people? What are they doing out there? Those are the people outside the New Covenant. They're still all out there. Look around, you'll see them. If you adopt a preterist view, the explanation is easy. We're in the New Covenant. Outside the New Covenant, there's still those unbelievers outside there. Like they We still need to take healing to the people. It still has to go on. Now, <clears throat> you know, people still go on talking about the end of the age, but does the New Covenant age end? Look what Hebrews 13.20 says. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The covenant, people, is an everlasting... The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. And if you have an everlasting covenant, guess what you don't have? Last days. End times. You don't have end times as something that doesn't end. Although Christ's return vindicated the witness of the first century church, God didn't mean for the rest of history to be anticlimactic. You know, people say, well, if it all ended in 870 and all prophecies were fulfilled, what are we supposed to do? His plan for us people today is an ever-deepening experience of Christ's presence, an unfolding realization of His sovereignty over all. We're supposed to walk with God. We're supposed to fellowship Him. We're supposed to learn of Him and live with Him and love Him every day. And we still take the Gospel to those who are outside the city. See, God called Israel to be a light to the nations. To lead people into the covenant relationship with the Father. And they blew it big time. They were terrible at it. They didn't want the nations coming to them. You know, this was our religion. This is our God. You people stay away. They never fulfilled their purpose. But guess what? His, his purpose for the church, the Israel of God, is the same. That we would take the gospel to the world, to those outside the city, calling them to drink the living water of the gospel. That's our calling. People are still coming into the city. The nations are still being healed. And it's our responsibility to be involved in that. Look at Revelation 22:17. This is the end of it, people. It's all, you know, they say this is the new heavens, new earth. This is the new Jerusalem. But the Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit and the church say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. In other words, did you hear the gospel? Then you say, come to somebody else, okay? Whoever hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come. People who aren't thirsty, don't worry about them. They don't care. They're not thirsty. You're not going to give them water. You're not going to jam it down their throat. All right? The one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price, people. It's free. The gospel's free, but it's our job to carry it. So yes, the new heavens and new earth came into being in AD 70 when God wiped out the old heavens and earth of Jerusalem. He brought us into the new covenant. He brought us into the city where we dwell with Him, where He is with us dwelling in this city, and our calling is still the same as Israel's was. They, they blew it big time, but we're called to bring healing to the nations. We're called to take the gospel to people who are outside the city, the sorcerers, the whoremongers, the dogs, the liars. All. We're taking the gospel to them. And the ones that are thirsty, they're going to come. The ones who desire will come. They'll desire because God plants the desire. They'll be thirsty because God gives them a thirst, and they'll come. And so people act like, well, if Christ came in 87, that's all over. No, it's not all over. It's going on and on. As far as I see, it never does stop. And we have the glorious privilege of walking in fellowship with our God and calling other people to enjoy that fellowship also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for just the opportunity to go over some basic biblical ideas, Father. Lord, help us to understand language based on your usage of it in the Bible, not our own ideas of it in 21st century America. Father, I thank You for Your grace, Your patience with us. Lord, give us a hunger to know the truth of the Word of God and to share it with those around us. Father, I pray we'd be faithful Israelites today, the new Israel, the true Israel. May we be faithful in our calling to bring the water of life to those who are thirsty. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace. Amen.